guys, welcome back to Who's On Worst, where we talk about the absolute garbagest movies that feature baseball in any fashion whatsoever. I am your host, Ashley McLennan. My co-host, as always, is Darby Robinson. Our intrepid producer, Brett Rutherford, is behind the scenes, but will be sharing some discussion with us on this particular topic. And we combined are a part of the D-Rays Bay Podcast Network. Uh, so today, oh boy, um, you did this to us because we continue to shoot ourselves in the foot and ask you guys to vote for what movies we should watch. Uh, we went with sequels as the theme for the poll for this one, and everybody voted for The Sandlot 2, uh, which is, well, Darby will tell us a little bit more about it, but I can tell you one thing, it is not The Sandlot 1. It's not the Sandlot one, but it's just basically the same movie, but yeah. the everything worse about it. Like a absolute the the It's a knock it's a knockoff version, but not. It's a knockoff version with the exact same writer and director as the first one. Yeah. And I'm going to mention that a lot because I don't think my brain can take the fact that somebody can create the Sandlot one of my all-time favorite baseball movies, a true treasure in the baseball movie landscape. A movie that I re-watched in preparation of this podcast <laughs> just to be like, is it as good as I remember? And it's fantastic. It's a delight from start to finish. And it, it just, it baffles my brain that you can have the same person writing and directing that movie, coming up with a story, the script, the directing the action, and then this, he, he does the, it's the direct, and he also narrates this one, but it's, it's so bad. It's so, The Sandlot 2 is awful. It is awful. I hated this movie. <laughs> so it, the, before we get into kind of, and, and Darby, I'm assuming you got the, the Rotten Tomatoes and the IMDb and all that nonsense. I'm but ready. I just, I want to say something so that you can kind of grasp what the Sandlot 2 is if you've never watched it and will never watch it, bless you. Um, it is what would happen if somebody tried to explain the plot of the Sandlot to somebody from a foreign country who didn't speak our language at all, and then that person went home and tried to make the Sandlot. It's also important that this person doesn't have any filmmaking ability as well. Like they, they, they don't, they've never actually seen a movie either. Not only have they not seen The Sandlot, they have not seen any movie. And simply hired any available children to play the children in the movie uh, and not by any means of the imagination talented actors. Uh, yeah, it's, it's real bad. It's real, real bad. Um, so the plot is... It's the same, it's beat for beat for the first movie, but this is what the synopsis is on Rotten Tomatoes. A gang of baseball playing kids managed to get a hold of a model NASA rocket belonging to one of their parents. When they accidentally shoot it into a nearby junkyard, they have to make a plan to get past a super ferocious mutated guard dog known as the Great Fear. This movie is this, it's beat for beat the same movie as The Sandlot. The, this is a unholy ripoff of The Sandlot, but it's the same writer and director. He ripped off himself. Like every- And worse. Yeah. And much worse, and much worse, which I 
have a conspiracy theory that I'm going to unveil later on, but I'm going to just tease it right now. Yeah, you have a, here's the, here are the things that the Sandlot 2 does that the Sandlot 1 does. You have an object goes over a wall into James Earl Jones, his backyard that's guarded by a big scary dog that little kids have imagined a story is big and scarier. The exact same ending of the movie. Uh, a lead character changes out his shoes to the faster shoes and then jumps over the fence to retrieve the object. He does. He then runs away. The dog breaks loose and then chases him around town to a pop hit of the time. Uh, you have a oh, pool I, scene. I you have, have my, my favorite. You have uh, some some just low-grade childhood sexual harassment and yeah, assault. So I, I want to point out that that gets even deeper because in the first movie, it's a character named Specs who is the Quince. one who, Squints, Quince. thank you. Sorry, that was my best up. Yeah, Squints, thank you. Um, who, who you know, is given a nickname based on his physical shortcoming, um, who then uses manipulation to get a girl to kiss him. In his mm -hmm. case, he faked drowning so that mm -hmm. uh, he could get mouth to mouth. In this film, it is a character named Fingers, who is called such because he is deaf and uses sign language, who is explicitly forbidden from going to a kissing booth at the parking lot fair, because obviously this is not something that has never happened before, where he then assaults. So he assaults the woman working at the kissing booth and is very proud of himself for having done so. Um, yeah, yeah. But I, that that connection where it was like, it's a character whose nickname is based off of some sort of physical ailment or shortcoming it, as to his friends is, is yeah, casually sexually assaulting people. The, the concept of kissing booths is like weird to begin yeah. with. Uh, but was it weird for you guys watching this in like a post COVID world? Uh, the like the, the like reliving the concept of a of a kissing booth. Ooh. I was like, Ew. I <laughs> yeah, just a parade of germs is a really weird parade. It it, it is a um, it's something that I, it must it maybe it was an, a previous era where they were more common because like I my only knowledge of them are basically through movies and television. Yeah. So maybe they never existed and it's entirely a trope of movies and television, but maybe it was something that was like in the 60s and the 50s. And then people were like, well, this is just weird. This is weird. What is happening right now? This is a thing. Um, yeah, so it's like watching the movie, I was very shocked early on. I, my expectations for this movie were unbelievably low. Like rock bottom low. So I'm like, okay, it's just going to be a, it's a straight to DVD you know, 2005, so 12 years after the original movie comes out. Very strange. I was shocked that the, the director and writer was the exact same and narrator as the first movie. So I'm like, well, that's weird to do a sequel to your unbelievably popular first movie. It takes 12 years and it's just a straight to DVD sequel. Like that's a, that's odd. You feels like there would be more juice to make like a theatrical sequel to that yeah. movie. But maybe not because if this was the story that he pitched, they'd be like, this is this is just the same movie again. This is a complete turd. And 
it's amazing how he just did the same movie worse a second time. Like, like there's a Fourth of July scene at the at the ball field. There's there's just all of the antics. It's like I get that the Sandlot one was a very deeply and in listening to interviews with um, uh, David David Mickey Evans, who's the the writer and director of the Sandlot and Sandlot two. Obviously, the first movie was a very deeply personal story. It's it's kind of based on the character of Smalls is based on himself, and it's you know, his friends growing up in Salt Lake City and this, you know, kind of summer or multiple summers kind of, and, and like the adventures that you get in as a kid and, and you know, played up towards for, for movies. It's amazing that there's no other stories that he had to tell. Like that was it. He got everything into the first Sandlot, like jumping over a fence and dogs and a pool and like kids shouldn't, it's unbelievable how devoid of like soul this movie is it is truly so it is because there's nothing there's it's just sucked out like the whole film beat for beat is this weird copy but it's shot very poorly it's very flat it, it feels like tv lighting a lot of ways like it doesn't look good it looks really cheap um and i it just i can't imagine that you make a sequel to this film and you get the creative vision of the first film and this is what they came up with yeah now the idea of doing the sandlot in a new decade i think is a good idea because the original sandlot it had you know it felt like you were in the 60s and if you could change it and the only thing that felt different in this one was the costumes i did not feel like this was the 70s at all except for like the sexism uh in in, in the costumes <laughs> that the characters were like other than that there was like the music was good i'll, I'll give them that uh, but other than that, like there wasn't enough like references to the seventies. I did notice in the music though, they had a couple of licensed songs and then they had a couple of vague songs that were generic, that sounded like they they did not get the license to Layla by Cream or yeah. Eric Clapton and Cream, but there is a just enough different version of Layla riff that's in there. And I'm like, that ah, they didn't get the reference because Eric Clapton would have never yeah. given the they're like the um characters, like really quickly, when we're introduced to them, uh, they are like weird caricatures of the 70s. There's like a hippie kid, there's a really into like war kid, there's like these weird and then like the then the girl it, like the main lead character of, of mm -hmm. kind of the yeah she is like a like hyper feminist and like uh women's empowerment she references gloria steinem her mom is like a very like early like new wave feminist where she's just mm -hmm. like lecturing her dad on saying things like you know don't use girly nicknames like sweetheart she's just like every other kid calls her like champ and tiger and everything like that which is ludicrous um but anyway you can tell that they think being a liberated feminist is a terrible thing um because they reference it a lot she's she's liberated she's liberated <laughs> and then they have a, the damsel in distress scene at home plate like 20 minutes later like it's yeah the movie mm -hmm. couldn't really decide where i wanted it can we talk bad about the child actors are, are we like oh, they're yeah. all old now 
they're all adults because some know, of them are still acting know. but wow they are bad real quick and I, I don't want to blame the children i want to blame the casting director whoever that was uh because brett kelly who actually has some pretty good roles later on in his career he played mac who was the ripoff of ham uh from the original movie he was cast in this movie to just be like Darby said, like a straight ripoff of ham who was portrayed by Patrick Renna in the first. And I said this to you guys before we started recording, like Patrick Renna in that first Sandlot movie, it's one of the best child acting performances I've ever seen. He's funny. He's charismatic. He pulls it all off. They, but it's iconic. It, like, yeah. He's still he's known for that role. He, he yeah. steals that movie. Like he absolutely steals that movie. Ham Porter yeah. is the like the breakout like character that everybody re- like his. He has some of the most reference lines in yeah. the whole thing. And then they tried to give line for line some of these same uh, lines to Brett Kelly and in, in his character. And I feel bad for him. And unfortunately for him, because not every child actor in this movie went on to have great careers. Some of them had no careers after this. He was in uh, Bad Santa and a couple other things where, you know, he did really well in. Whoa, sh- he- sorry. That's the guy from Bad <laughs> yeah, Santa? That, yeah, it is. I did not want to make assumptions about curly-haired fat kids, but like, <laughs> oh, man. Um, but in this movie, man, it was really rough. Like, line after line, none of them landed. Uh, it was tough to watch. I think the other big thing is not only is it, like, the act, the kid acting is really not good in this movie, but they, they also don't, they're not given any anything to work with, like script-wise. And one of the biggest problems with this movie is that right off the bat, obviously I'm going to compare it to the Sandlot 1, because again, you just ripped it off, so why not? The characters all suck. Like, they are not endearing at all. Like, all of these characters are super, like, mean and, like, loud and annoying. Like, none of them are, like, that interesting. Like in the first film, you know, Ham is like a, he is kind of brash and sarcastic and, you know, he can dish out the insults as like a 10 year old would, but like, he's not, he has like heart to him. And most importantly missing is that the lead character, the character that will do the heroic act at the end, in the first movie, Benny is amazing he is such a charismatic and kind and like generous character like he is a good-hearted person he cares about people's feelings and he's able to integrate the the the, you know the new kind of dorky kid into the group and it works so well and the characters while they kind of give each other crap and they rib each other as kids do there is like you can get the sense of like some bonding and yeah. some like actual heart. And he's David. Like, <laughs> this the first 20 minutes are just like them yelling and being obnoxious to and, everybody. Yeah, infighting. So like that that when we first meet our smalls in this movie, because there is another smalls, basically, so that the ham stand-in can say every sentence ending in smalls, uh, none of which thankfully are you're killing me. Um, they managed to avoid ripping the lines off of all the, of all the times to show any kind of restraint. Restraint, It's it's amazing. They chose that. So our smalls Johnny is a, he's obsessed with rocketry, which is a big part of the, the going forward momentum of this, this plot. He, he kind of shows up at the sandlot one day with the toy rocket that he's about to set off. And as a result of David and his little gang of sandlot hooligans, 
immediately assuming that he is a spy planted by their little league rivals for no reason whatsoever. Um, they knock the rocket over, which in it, it creates a, a kind of domino effect of chaos that results in their dugout getting destroyed and getting caught on fire. Um, and so they chase him. He is then protected by Haley, whose house is right next door to the Sandlot. And this sets up the first act's kind of main rivalry, which is between David and the Sandlot gang and Haley and her softball friends. And so this initial challenge gets set up because Haley kind of wants to put them in their place because she didn't like how he treated Johnny and didn't like their general behavior. And there is a scene that I think is literally almost three minutes long of the Sandlot crew standing on one side of the park and the softball girl standing on the other side of the park and Johnny going back and forth between these two groups as each one of them, as the boys say, well, tell them they have to leave. And he goes to the girls and the girls say no. And that scene, you could have pulled it off maybe doing it like once, but it literally continues for three minutes of back and forth and back and forth until finally Johnny collapses and says, why don't you just share? And it's like, oh, Mary never would have thought of that. What a dumb idea. Oh, okay. Oh, like at some point during this fiasco, nobody thought, well, maybe, maybe we could all play baseball together instead of having a five person baseball team. Um, but, you know, just a thought. It's, and, and it's, it's stuff like that. It's that those filler scenes, because there's just not enough content that there are, are like, these lengthy scenes that are absolutely meaningless. Like, what? and the thing is, you don't need, what I found uh, interesting rewatching the Sandlot one, the, 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 the only Sandlot that ever matters, everything else should be burned uh, entirely. But the watching the Sandlot, I realized that there really isn't like a traditional three act structure to it. It's very much just a, like a series almost of vignettes of this summer. It's just, it's these kids just interacting. Like the the 4th of July fireworks, beautiful shot. Like, like the cinematography in the original Sandlot is spectacular. That person did not come back for this one. <laughs> uh, and you could tell. But like, like, it's beautiful in the sense that it just happens. You know, the kids all like, like, oh, night game. And they all run out and there's this fireworks display and that's great. But it's just, it's just a moment. There's no like thing before that or after that that's like really needed um, per se. And there's very little like what happens at the beginning sets up the end. There's some of it. There's very, like very briefly, but really it doesn't need it. You just are capturing a moment and a feeling and it works super well in that regard. This movie tries to do that same thing, which is just like, just stuff happening. Yep. Until eventually, you know, something's going over that fence and somebody is gonna to have to retrieve it and we're gonna just get the exact same thing again. But none of it just works. Like, like because these characters aren't interesting or likable, you, you're just stuck just in this really dull, like annoying characters that you're not getting these like fun scenes. Like when you get to a scene like, and I know it's been talked about a lot, the, the, the Squints and Wendy Peppercorn pool scene which has not aged the best <laughs> where, where you have, you know, like a nice little sexual assault right there in the film and that's played for laughs. That scene is set up much better than this one. And 
while there are some like, that's not super appropriate for a kid's movie now, it does still feel like there is this sense of like, that isn't appropriate then, but also like, it just is this like setup and that yeah. character isn't supposed to necessarily be like the most rootable, but like, whatever. This one, they just like are rushing to it because they just need to hit that beat. But it's even even worse because it's just the content that is bad and yeah. none of the like surrounding context that like almost sets it up, right? It almost like the setup of the fact that these are kids that they barely even know what they are doing. Like, like sexuality is sort of just like this new vague thing that's in their life. Whereas this kid just feels like a sexual predator. It's established that Squints is a thing for Wendy and like it's it's built in. Whereas this is literally, they're at the carnival and like whatever his name is, the older brother whose name was absolutely inconsequential and I cannot remember it. Clyde, I don't know. I might be making that up. Um, <laughs> I like he, it. He tells his, he stops. He's like, I was like, gotta go to the bathroom. And he's like, but you know what mom said? Don't go to the kissing booth. And I'm like, oh, Jesus, this isn't going to be good. There's no way this is going to be good. And lo and behold, it was not good. Um, yeah, it's, I, I, I reread a, like a breakdown of the plot points of the Sandlot because it's been probably 20 years since I've seen it at this point. Like it's, it's been a while and it is. Everything in there is hit. Like everything that you talked about already from the chase scene, taking him all the way around town and right back to the, the Sandlot to every aspect of the thing going around. And honestly, I thought that it was going to be slightly different when I started watching this because you have the initial setup where it's like, oh, well, we got to compete with the little league guys because they want to take our field. And I thought, okay. And then they go over to the little league game where <laughs> inexplicably the entire little league team is just like, fuck you coach. And like goes over to the fence and starts <laughs> shit talking these Sandlot kids. And like, is the coach like, oh, I'll start my coach, my nephew. And like, that guy might be the only good thing about this entire movie. And so- It wasn't then just a coach. It was Steve Garvey. Oh my God. <laughs> it was. That's those forearms. You can, I cannot miss those forearms. They're Joey Wendell esque forearms. Oh, so then, like, this kid who absolutely kills me, Singleton, was their, their nemesis. This kid named Singleton looks like a tiny little Tim Lincecum. And he, he and his buddies, like, swagger over. And this kid's five feet tall, if anything. And he takes off his batting helmet and, like, shakes his mane out at the fence and then i swear and this is just through my lens legitimately starts flirting with these kids like i think singleton maybe had some like things that he had to work out later in life but like he jumped right into the oh what are you losers doing here oh you kind of come watch me play oh like he's played off as the bully but like he loves the attention and he really like relishes it and then later on gets mad because a girl is taking all of the attention away from him mm. from these guys. Like, I'm sorry. Like, I, I Much mean, more of an interesting punch up. I like that. Anyway, so this is built up as the major rivalry. And then it's like, okay, well, you, us, tomorrow, we'll play for use of the Sandlot. And then the, the, the voiceover is going, oh, it was the most important game we would ever play. And I'm like, guys, we're 25 minutes into this movie. How are we already playing the most important game you will ever play at the Sandlot? And the entire point of this play, of this whole game, is that Haley's too good, 
and this this kid can't stand the competition or the the fact that he's losing and turns around and like basically kind of like gut punches her with a ball as she's running home on an infield home run like an infield but in the park home run because uh, nothing ever goes over the wall mm-hmm. it's a very important part of the, the story and so he like basically sucker punches her in the stomach with his glove and it's have you ever watched one of those compilations of like the worst on-screen movie deaths where it's like one from like <laughs> trolls two where it's just like oh no oh oh no oh no that is how Haley going to the ground after getting punched in the stomach went as far as i'm concerned because she just went oh, oh barely touched and then fell over and um, this, of course, was entirely done, not because she's a liberated woman, but so that David could punch this annoying little league kid. And that is pretty much the last we see of the little league team until later in the movie when the kid gets splashed with a bike as they go through the dog chasing them. Um, but yeah, I, I felt like I saw this happen and I'm like, OK, so what is the plot of this movie going to be? Because that was what I thought it was going to be. It's also a ton less baseball. Like you mentioned, that's the most baseball in it. There's so little baseball in this movie. It's remarkable. Like you have basically the start-ish where where the fake ham, what's his name? Mac. 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 Fake ham uh, is, um, is trying to go against Haley and she's a she's a softball player and so she's gonna pitch him under you know fast pitch softball and he can't touch it and one of the actual only good jokes in the entire movie is that she throws through it so fast he's standing up to the plate and he's like trash talking her and she throws it so fast that he doesn't realize the ball went by him and is and is basically like all right when are you gonna throw it and that is that was kind of funny but like that's that scene then you got the the little league other well, teams. Darby, before we say there's no baseball in this movie, can we first address the fact that there's five straight minutes of David hitting foul balls off Haley uh, right. before they That's call right. it a night? I wish I was making that an exaggeration. I wish it's I was. Really long. It's really long. Like, I I at a certain point you would accidentally either hit it to the outfield or strike out. I've seen a lot of baseball in my time. I'm not going to lie, guys. There's just no way you're going to hit 47 foul balls in a row. And, like, it would have been fine if he hit a home run, though. Like, I don't think it would have changed the plot. Like, if he hits a home run off of her, I don't think that would have been. Or if she strikes him out. Like, just yeah, pick one. If he struck out, they would have still showed up the next day. to late Exactly. Play field, mm-hmm. Right? Like, it's yeah. not. We won fair and square. You got to go. And then, no, we won't. Yes, you will. No, you won't. Yes, you will. Three minute diatribe could still have happened. But like, wow. When I'm talking about pointlessly long scenes, that foul ball scene like takes the cake. Like it just went. It's definitely one of those things where it's like a scene that, you know, the, the joke, I guess, is that it's going on forever. But you're just like, I'm also as bored as these characters. Like you've successfully made this. Made me, you've pulled me into the film enough to also be bored to death right now until everybody has to get called home for a bath. And a bath. David, David is 12 years old and gets called home for a bath. But, um, 
these pointless montages, like, there was so much character development that could have taken place, like, in those minutes of film that were taken up. Like, we never... In, in, a huge part of the, of the first movie with Small's character is his relationship not only with his mom, but with his stepdad, played by Dennis Leary. Now, I, I assume uh, they couldn't get Dennis Leary to reprise his role because he, assuming that that, that couple stayed together, would have been the biological father to... Uh, Johnny Small, so I'm sure they couldn't get him back. Uh, but we like never saw Johnny at home. Uh, we hear we don't. I really don't think they mentioned uh, explicitly that he is the little brother to Smalls until does, like, over halfway through the movie, though. Yeah, I don't think it's mentioned at like the beginning. Gives his full name and he says it's Smalls. That you kind of go mm-hmm. like he talks about his. I think he says, "Well, my brother was there in the voiceover," but he doesn't really tell you who his brother is. There's and... a ton of voiceover in this movie too, like way, way too much, and yeah. it's like all setting up stuff. Like they, there's a little bit of like you can foreshadow, but you cannot just like keep hammering in like. Oh, How then, many voiceovers of this, like David Durango is about to, like, like he doesn't know it yet, but this is going to be the most important moment of his life. Or yeah. he's going to, he does, it's, he's 99 days away from the yeah. most impactful thing. It's like, oh my God, show don't tell. It's, it's all tell. All tell. It's so brutal. And it's so specific. Like the 99, it, it, this wasn't the moment that the, you know, the great moment happened, but in 99 days, that moment would happen. And I'm like, whoa, are we going to go through it one day at a time? Because I feel like that would take us a while. Um, but whoa. Yeah. So I, I tease that I, I have a conspiracy theory about this. I have a conspiracy theory. This is entirely... Yeah, and you know what? It's... Okay, there's a... Let, let's start it. Let's start it off with this. There's a, a old Hollywood kind of like folk legend about the movie Poltergeist. 1982. Well, there, there's the curse, but there's a different one that's more, more, I think, more interesting than the curse. The the curse is also quite interesting. Uh, It's directed by Tobe Hooper. However, Steven Spielberg is credited as helping write the script, the story, and as well as producing it. Now, in Hollywood lore, there is a lot of debate about who actually directed the movie. Poltergeist. Uh, at the time, Steven Spielberg was basically under contract to by Universal to do E.T. And when he was doing that, he was basically not allowed to, to work on any other projects. So he basically helps get Poltergeist made thanks to a story by Tobe Hooper, who kind of pitched it to him and, and Spielberg, being Spielberg, was able to get it um, greenlit. And so he's on as like an executive producer, right? Which is mostly just name only. Spielberg signs off. So let's make this movie. Now the film comes out and the film doesn't really feel like a Tobe Hooper movie. He has a very different style to this. And Poltergeist is a fantastic movie. A lot of charm, a lot of heart, some scares, good special effects, really good movie. Much better than Sandlot 2. The thing is, Poltergeist kind of feels like a Steven Spielberg movie. Like it really feels like it. And there's been a lot of rumors, especially on some of the interviews that Tobe Hooper did back in the day about how much of an influence Steven Spielberg had in that movie. How much that maybe Steven Spielberg actually was the shadow director of Poltergeist. That he would basically be whispering in Tobe Hooper's ear everything he wanted 
to have done. And then Tobe Hooper would direct, but only basically be the person in the chair. And Steven Spielberg actually did direct Poltergeist. Now, I say that long story to basically say that my conspiracy theory is that David Mickey Evans did not direct the Sandlot one. He might be credited, and I don't know who actually did, but I, to maintain my sanity, cannot believe that he is the sole director or writer of The Sandlot One. Because when I look at his filmography, what I see is a person that made The Sandlot, then he made First Kid with Sinbad, that's his next directorial film. Then he made Beethoven's Third and Beethoven's Fourth straight to VHS Beethoven sequels to eventually The Sandlot 2 with no other Good major movies. release. He also yeah. wrote a movie that we will do eventually, Ed, mm. about a baseball playing monkey and Matt LeBlanc. Yeah. Classic. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. All due respect, David Mickey Evans. But something is fishy. And I need a huge podcast series to investigate what <laughs> happened in 1993 to make the Sandlot work because something is up. <laughs> I like it. The truth is out there. I, I could have spent way more time on this particular episode of the podcast just talking about poltergeist theories because that's way more interesting than this movie. Uh, we're going to take a really quick break. And then when we get back, we will talk. Uh, I don't even know if we can really dive into like the baseball. and the, You know what? We will. And I have some thoughts. Um, so we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. So for a movie that's ostensibly about baseball, which all of the movies we talk about are meant to be, um, I think maybe like 20 minutes total of the running time of this movie featured any actual baseball whatsoever. And five minutes of that was foul balls. So uh, there's not a ton to discuss in terms of the baseball in this movie because we're not really given much opportunity to see if David Durango is actually a good player, if any of the guys on this team have any skill whatsoever. But the one thing I will give this movie credit for uh, this one place where, it, well, I mean, there's a couple places where this movie is better than The Scout because, let's be real, uh, nobody puts a soft shell tortilla on their face and talks through it. So that's points right there. Um, the one thing I will say is you never got to see Steve Nebraska actually throw a pitch in The Scout. And Haley throws a metric butt ton of fast pitch softball pitches uh, enough that I'm sure she hates this movie because the, most of them are in slow-mo and nobody's face looks good throwing a pitch in slow-mo um, but yeah she throws a ton and they hold that camera steady on her for the entire duration of those pitches and quite frankly it looks like she's throwing them pretty darn well they're not all placed where they show up on camera at the end I'll give you that much but uh, she's consistent and I, I think you see her throw a good you know, 50 odd pitches over the course of the movie. So I got to give it credit for that. Yeah, I, I thought she looked pretty good. Um, I, I thought David's swings were okay. They were okay. But yeah. she definitely had the most like baseball chops 
uh, or, or softball child. Like it, she looked, she looked like she's a pretty decent athlete. Yeah. Unlike most of the rest of the, like the cast, like I, there's not a lot enough to really showcase whether or not there are um, some really good baseball players in there. I noticed that it is kind of interesting that the, the bully of the, the softball team that, that was like kind of the best player on that team, uh, kind of your David counterpart. Oh, the um, little league kid. Yeah. He's a, he's the catcher. Yeah. But, but I think, that's not where, he, but he also maybe plays a lot because he's also I, in the infield. I think later he had actually on. been pitching in that later instance where the, the ball goes when he gets the splashed field. with the water. I, I okay. think it, it was either infield or pitching, but yeah, during the game at the Sandlot, he is the catcher. Um, so this is, this is a kind of an interesting thing because now catching is incredibly important in baseball. It is a very important position. It is not as important in like little league. That is not usually where you put your best athletes. Unless we're talking about Airbud seventh inning fetch. In <laughs> That's case, true. That's true. Tammy, Tammy was bar none one of the best young players I've ever seen in my days of watching these films. Yes. Um, they, that, that was, again, the rock solid catcher for our, our who's on worst rays. Uh, that's like a 10 year deal right yeah. there. She, I mean, she's locked in. We can't use, we, you can't use um, a league of their own because we could have Dottie, Dottie Henson, best, yeah. best catcher there is, but uh, that's not a bad movie. So we can never talk about it. So. <laughs> uh, yeah. But yeah, catchers uh, are easier like the heroes because it's kind of an underdog, like Bull Durham, League of Their Own. They're kind of like these quiet heroes. Or a good um, sidekick to yeah. play off of the hero, like in uh, Bull Durham, or um, the movie we watched, Summer Catch, with uh, yeah. you know Matthew Lillard. Matthew Lillard. Yeah. Uh, Matthew Lillard, please come on our podcast. I asked nicely. <laughs> um, going going back real quickly to to Haley Goodfair, that character, and Samantha Burton, the actress that that played her. This was her only acting credit ever. And oh. in terms of the child actors, which is crazy because I swore, and maybe she looks like someone else, but I swore I've seen her in so many other things. Maybe it's because I saw this movie a bunch when I was little. Uh, but out of all the child actors, I thought she held her own really more than any of them. Uh, maybe she was written a little better, even though I don't think she was written particularly well. Um, but I, th- I thought out of the child performances, she, she really kind of was the, was the best of the bunch. And it might be a writing thing because she, I thought she did do really well, a good performance, but the, her counterpart and like kind of like ostensibly the, again, the Benny, the jet of, of this movie, which, you know, David played by Max Lloyd Jones, who has actually, who still is acting. Like he has acted in a lot of things. So he was like a professional like actor but he, his character is not given, his character trait is basically not saying anything for like most of the movie. So that's just not a great dope. choice because he, you're not, he was like give terrible. him some personality. Well, quick terrible. fun fact on Max Lloyd-Jones. Uh, apparently, he's British. Apparently Max Lloyd-Jones was the stand-in in the, I, I guess I got to spoil the series, season finale of The Mandalorian. But he was the stand-in for the <laughs> Jedi in the season finale of The Mandalorian. I won't name the Jedi. Really? The Jedi. Yeah, it says double for Max Jedi. Lloyd. Interesting. So, I mean, that's is a he, pretty he, big role, I guess. That's wild. That is so wild. 
Yeah, I mean, so like, I don't, I'm not gonna, you know, criticize Max Lloyd-Jones's career or anything like that, or even, I don't, I can't even, it's hard to say, to criticize his performance. I can. There is no performance. There's no performance. He's just standing there. And and so there's no, like, there's no lines to really go off of. It's just a brick, just a brick. And it's yeah. such an unfortunate thing because we are building up to a moment. We like literally the whole movie is trying to talk about this and you're, and it's demanding we care and you can't possibly care about this character. Cause one, the only personality you showed most of the film is being kind of a jerk and trying to beat up Smalls. Yeah. Which is like, what, like what, are we rooting for him? Like, is this the, are these the bad guys of the movie? But like, they're trying to beat him up. He's super lame. He's constantly just like staring blankly uh, at Haley. And that's his like personality. Or yelling about how we have to play baseball every day. Uh, even when it's super hot out, got to play baseball every day. Yeah. Um, and then maybe being afraid of Bigfoot. That was also a character. And being afraid of Bigfoot. Yeah. Being afraid of Bigfoot. Um, yeah. It's a real. It's bad. So I, I got to say, I know you don't want to criticize his performance, but he did have lines and he delivered them about as well as the kid from Dazed and Confused um, with just fewer eyebrow pinches. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It was not good acting. And props to him. He has continued to be like that guy who shows up for one episode of long running TV shows, um, which many people have made a career of doing, uh, especially people in Canada. You'll find that lots of, you know, repeat offenders for those kinds of roles, but he's British. So it's kind of Canadian, I guess. I don't know. Commonwealth. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, the Britain of North America. It's, it's, the, it's the Canada on an island. I don't know what to tell you. Um, we all have the same queen. <laughs> we are all in the same commonwealth. Um, but no, it's not good. It's not, he, he's the worst. No, the kid who plays Johnny is the worst. Um, yeah. He's yeah. rough, like, like painfully bad. Like to a point where you're just like, you feel like maybe he's dragging everybody around him down a little bit because of how bad he is. Um, and also has in this movie, the one scene all by himself that I don't know, do either of you guys or any of you guys listening have that thing where like contact embarrassment hurts mm. you to your very soul? Like watching somebody else screw something up just makes you cringe inwardly to a point of pain. Um, for me, it was watching him pull that rocket out into the field and just mm. watching that whole scene unfold. And I'm just like, I still, but to, you know what guys, I'm gonna another like, okay, so the, the, the crux of this is to get the, the item into the dog's yard. What happens is Haley's dad works for NASA. And he's working on a top secret project in his garage, as we know that NASA loves to do, um, to give top secret projects to engineers to work on at home in their personal garages. Especially during the Cold War. Billions of dollars right. of, of work and time and effort. Um, a lot of most, loose security during the Cold War. <laughs> most certainly won't go terribly wrong because he has three different locks on that door. It's okay. Um, but he can't talk about it. And if he talks about it, he'll have to kill you. And he's not really kidding. But then suddenly, inexplicably, I, I still don't understand what happened here. 
top secret. Yeah, there's no build up to this at all. No build up. Sits down. Yeah, who had previously literally said, I can't tell you because it's top secret and means it. He he sits down with Johnny and he's just like, hey, kid, I know you said rockets are your life. So why don't you meet me here on Friday morning and I'll let you help me set off my little project. And what else could he have possibly meant? Like I'm, I'm racking my brain. Cause if, if, the, if Johnny had pulled that rocket out and there was like a cute little like firework or like a mini version of the mini version, you know what I mean? Something that a kid could feasibly be expected to use that whole setup would have made way more sense. But instead, all I can assume is that he actually did mean that rocket and that he was going to let the kid help him with it. But why would you let a nine-year-old help you with a multi-billion dollar space force type? Like there's no part of that plot from being able to have that equipment in your garage to a kid knowing, I, I get that rockets are his life, but knowing how to trigger set up a massive gas propelled rocket in this field and mm -hmm. like knowing how all that equipment would work and setting it up properly to not just explode and kill him and then doing it. I hope Danny listens to this because his dad is an actual rocket scientist. And I would yeah. love to have uh, Mr. Russell explain to me the feasibility of this scene. Watch watch this scene. And then, yeah, I need Danny, please get your father to like review this. And he, he can come on a future podcast if you will. Yeah, I we need a special that. special pod just to, just to hear what his take is on this. Um, okay, so that whole sequence is so much more convoluted to get to than the first Sandlot's situation. There is something simple about the idea that Smalls, who's not athletic at all, gets that the ball means something emotional to his stepfather, but does not fully grasp how unbelievably rare and important that ball is and decides to use it in the game but because like immediately as it's hit over the fence, he knows that that's bad. But then only after them revealing that Babe Ruth is not just some girl, but the great Bambino, how dead he truly yeah. is. So very simple, good, like I get it, kid, kid thing. Great. This is so, you, you're totally, he, shoots off a missile that is able to go into space, mm -hmm. into the atmosphere. It breaks the Earth's atmosphere, at least the low atmosphere. Maybe it's in just like the, uh, I, it, what? How? How? But it's it so insanity. lands with Elon Muskian precision right next door to where it was fired off from. Like, the like the fact that like the the propulsion units landed exactly where the rocket was launched from like to the point where they land in the crater and he takes them back and puts them in the garage like no one will notice and then the actual like shuttle part of this mini rocket comes back down and lands so close to where it was fired from 
that it's literally in the yard next door. Like, I can suspend a lot of disbelief in movies, my friends, but this pushes my limits a little bit. Now, when, when he's fired off this rocket and he's created a giant crater in the middle of the pitching mound, basically, yep. all the way down into like the pit, um, they then go on to, they watch the dad on TV at a, like a NASA press conference talking about how it's the single most important project uh and part of the mission um space rate like it like it's a huge huge deal right i think at the end they are supposed to say that like basically that rocket is just like a prototype as a they test say and it's, it's not the actual it's yeah it's a miniature because like, the actual project is something much more important like they're like but like we're talking like missiles worked on it for three years right like so right. it's not nothing it isn't the big rocket, but I think the the way the miniature works is going to factor fairly big into the construction right. of the larger version, right? Like it's kind yes. of a test. So it's very important. That it does as much as it does though. That's the, that's the problem is that it launches something into orbit visible to the entire town, like mm -hmm. a giant comet crashing to earth and then returns back to the exact same location and it doesn't fall apart returning no, yeah so it's made of material that it is able to warm. survive re-entry yeah it's spacex before spacex like just make it a, a a like a like a like a model toy that goes up into the air like really high but not into the atmosphere at all and then just comes crashing down in the yard that's it that's all you need and then make it so that the kids think because they're children that that is the that is the rocket that they think they're working on but it's really like whatever it's just a toy so like he'll be in trouble but not like that bad yeah and so like they're still getting into this adventure they just you know don't realize it's it's a very weird plot point and it does not work as well as the baseball just do the baseball just do it with like an updated like like it's a Willie Mays baseball or something. I don't know. I just, the part of it that I still can't get past beyond the physics is that the dad would suddenly be like, hey, strange kid who's been hanging around my yard, the name I actually don't really remember. Um, would you like to set off my government experiment with me in the, like this Friday? Like what up? Like you can build to that. Like you can build to the, like he, like this is the only kid that shows interest Mm -hmm. in his stuff and this is like a fun project he's doing and he wants to share it with somebody and then you almost have like that scene in the first Sandlot where where the 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 stepfather Dennis Leary and Smalls are kind of trying to bond over baseball and they're like you know they they haven't really connected on anything but now they're trying to connect on this and that you can have a scene of bonding yeah but but it's there's no build-up like you like here's the thing you get to write the screenplay you know where the beginning and the middle of the end is so if you need to get to a point you just got all the rest of the script to write to to build to that point like it's not like you just had to be like oh i forgot an incident uh let's just have this person do it this isn't even like i, I just doesn't make any sense like so many actions of this movie just don't make sense and it's like we know these scenes weren't left on the cutting room floor because we have the sequences like the running back and forth on the baseball field and uh, the foul ball uh, montage, I guess you could call it. So we, I hope other scenes weren't left on the cutting room floor in place 
of of, of these scenes. Uh, but honestly, I mean, who knows with this movie? They could they could have been. Or somebody could have been like, nah, man, we can't do a baseball again. You did that last time and we're already towing the line a little bit. Make something else go into the yard with the dog because then it'll be different. I mean, so like the first movie is about baseball. It's about coming of age. It's, it's nostalgia and it's all of those things. This film has, it's so weird how it just basically fails at those key elements that if you can hit it hits it's fine you like you there's so much forgive it forgivable room if you can just hit the broad strokes of the emotional beats and when you don't what you get is this and you get like why is there a rocket you get to focus on the absurdity of this whole setup also when it gets to the Okay, there's this giant wall of trash, basically. I kind of loved the wall of trash. I'm not going to lie. I thought it was really cool looking. And and here's the thing. It is really cool looking. And that's where I'm like, okay, they didn't have... I was thinking, like, maybe this film doesn't look that great and and screenplay's a mess because they were like, here's here's some cash. We just this want this a cheap three-week shoot. Just do it fast. You have no money. You have no acting. You have just whatever. Just make it happen. And it's a soulless studio cash grab. But then you spend the time to make like a really cool prop like that. And there's there's money in that prop. Like that, that, like that takes time. And it was efforts. functional. Like people were walking on it. So you clearly had some money. So like that's where the story beats make no sense. Cause they're like, what are you doing when they're building this prop? Take another pass on the script. <laughs> like make that make more sense. Um, I love the trash wall. I think it looks really cool. Uh, there's not a whole lot of logic to why, why, spo- okay, basically at the end, the exact same beat from the first film happens where after they retrieve the object from over the fence, the in, 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 instead of the dog, Hercules being crushed by the fence, by the wall falling over and then the kids lifting it off to save Hercules and then Hercules sloppers all over Smalls. And it's adorable. And the dog just wanted to play. He was just lonely. Um, In this, David Durango jumps over the wall again, collapses through a tunnel, a literal mine shaft tunnel that the kids have built in like a day. Let's pause there for a sec because this won't take long to discuss, but um, Mac gets the idea to construct this tunnel because he's out for a bike ride and goes by a theater where there is a sign for the great escape, the Steve McQueen classic, um, and realizes that what he has to do to get into the yard is to tunnel under it, um, which is an inexplicable solution. One, because the entire story Smalls told them was about how much this dog loved to dig. And why on earth would you decide to tunnel into a yard where something clearly loves to dig holes? And the one, there's not much to like about this movie, but one thing I've got to give it credit for when we talk about rip-off music earlier in the movie is that there is a very coy homage to the wonderful classic theme from The Great Escape played as Mac goes underneath in this tunnel. Um, it's not quite the, the famous song. And like, just go and Google Great Escape theme because you'll know it even if you don't think you know it. 
Um, and that I was just like, oh, it's so close, very Layla-esque like <laughs> earlier, but like, it's just not quite there enough for them to get sued. Um, and I liked that. There was some serious, uh, I don't know if you guys will get this reference fully, but there was some serious Phineas and Ferb crap going on uh, with these kids this summer where they're able to like build mines and like yeah. rebuild dugouts in like a day. Like it happened every, and it was just like the exact plot of like Phoenician firm that they build something in a day in the summer. Like it was, yeah, that, yeah. that part was a bit of a stretch. I did have to laugh that they were going to dig a tunnel underneath from yard to yard. And they chose, uh, uh, and I say this as a, as a fat person, they chose the fattest person <laughs> in the entire group to be the person to go through that tunnel. I'm just like, you guys could have saved yourself a good feat of clearing. Clearly use depth. fingers. Like fingers right. is the smallest of them you all. Gotta you use gotta fingers. use fingers yeah. are Johnny. Those guys were the smallest for sure. Um, it, let's be realistic here. You're going to be digging a hot tunnel in a day. So anyway, they okay. So they set up the 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 monster on the other side is the dog, and Smalls is the one to tell the group what's on the other side. In a reversal from the first movie where Smalls doesn't know, but the uh, the only reason gets to he tell does know is because his brother knows the legacy right. from the the ten years ago Sandlot days. So, and it's the exact same sequence, just a worse version, black and white, make believe things, blah 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 blah. But David does know that it's a just a dog, and he had a scary moment with the dog as a kid. Okay, but like he already knows that it's a dog like he knows it's not a monster i guess if you're six and something attacks you spoiler alert the kid in the story smalls tells is david yeah um and you can tell the right red away, rocket telegraphed by the giant bar bite mark on the back of his leg and every time that they get into a story smalls is like oh little did i know how Haley, david and i would be connected for years and i still don't know how Haley was connected to that story um but she was just there she was just there like, she like there's no connect yeah I, was, I never got that i was like what is where is this connection gonna happen like, does she also have a dog bite like what's happening um but yeah so spoiler he's the kid in the story and yeah i could see how if you're six and you get attacked by a giant dog that that could be blown out of proportion in your mind to being a monster mm -hmm. um and but they they tie it into bigfoot a lot like there's mm -hmm. a lot of bigfoot going on in this movie you could also just have them, but here's the thing. David doesn't back up the story from Johnny. Like Johnny is telling him that there's like a monster on the other side of this thing that his brother told him about. And nobody like believes him. And David also doesn't like, is like pretends not to believe or whatever. Yeah. And he, cause he's I, nervous and scared. I, but it, that, ugh, no, it doesn't make any sense. Right, like we know we're gonna get to this point. So I don't know why it had to be the same creature. Then we know, because we've seen the first movie, what they're gonna do is a series of hijinks to try to retrieve the object, right? And I was like, where's the erector set coming in? And don't worry, there's an erector set. Like literally everything. You can't, it's the same stuff, right? And when are you gonna dangle the kid down? Oh, surprise curveball they're not dangling a kid they're dangling a goddamn cat and yeah. it's the most uncomfortable scene because we've already seen this what to the kids 
appearance is a bloodthirsty, monstrous beast, mm-hmm. mutated monster that's destroying everything. And at this point, I can't even remember if it's before or after the Great Escape digging scene. But it's the before. Few, but the few options that they've done have been like disastrous, and the the creatures attacked, and they've been all super scared or whatever. And then they dangle Haley's cat on a like this whole sequence when it starts. It's like the cow going into the cage in it's, Jurassic Park. Yes, exactly. Um, where like the guy's like, "What are you doing with the cow?" Like, "Oh, you don't like you don't like lamb." Uh, anyway, it's, it's, so we we were watching this movie, my wife and one of our friends, and this sequence from the from the jump is just like us shouting and being like uncomfortable because there's the cat and it's a real cat and it's just like sitting there flopping in a harness as, as all good ha- cats yeah. are in this harness and they're going to dangle it over and they're going to drop it down and it's going to be scared and so it's going to have its claws out and it's going to grab the thing it's a stupid plot in general right yeah. like it's it doesn't work the vacuum cleaner or the kid being dangled which is kind of this is what both of those from the first movie combined both of those make more sense logically as a kid this one just makes no sense. Haley's very concerned because obviously they, she lets them do it anyway. Yeah. Like I don't I don't understand why this would be a thing. Like it makes more sense for like the kid to try to do it, to be like, you know, in the thing, but they couldn't do that because they already did that in the first movie. So they dangle the cat over and it's it's going up and it's going over and it's dropping down. And it's just like, what are they gonna do? Like, I have no faith in this movie to not like kill do something terrible. And I'm yeah. like, are they gonna kill this goddamn cat in this movie? Like, what are you doing? And uh, the the beast, the the hound, whatever they, whatever the name of it is, the, the great, great fear, fear, the great fear uh, goes face to face with the cat. And then there's an attack and it off screen. And then a bunch of feathers come up for some reason. I think like, it's supposed I, to be fur, but yeah. There's definitely feathers. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know what was going They did not have the time to get, they just got feathers. And then they pull the cat back. The cat is alive, thankfully. And unharmed. And unharmed, except for now it's a hairless cat. It's yeah. a completely different species of cat. <laughs> oh my God, it's such a stupid sequence. Like, it's not cheeky fun. It's just stupid because it's not even, it doesn't make any sense. Like, because well, the cat of, would never be able to lift the rocket anyway, whether it's, it, it's not going to like cling to it. And yeah, so what's funny about that is that we, we, were, we had our group chat going. And first, I commented on how casual sexual assault is fun. And then it got to the scene where they explained how the dog has been chained up in the backyard attached mm. to a boat anchor. And I'm like, oh, who are casual animal cruelty is also really funny. And Darby assumed that I'd gotten to the cat scene and talked about how he and his friends had screamed through that whole sequence. I'm like, I mean, like it was really just a scene, Darby, calm down. And <laughs> then I get to the cat scene and all caps, I'm just like, I had not seen this yet when I made my last comment. Uh, it was terrible, terrible. Like it's bad. It's bad, and not in the way that, like, like in the first film, there's all these like cheeky adventures to try to get the thing back, and like inventions, like the erector set, the you know, and dangling the kid, and like vacuum cleaners to try to like suction it up, 
and it's all stuff that I could imagine as a kid you'd like try yeah and it's fun you know what kills me though like let's let's talk about this this is Smalls's younger brother Mm-hmm. and he's heard this story about the dog that's all well and fine but w- at one point I think I think it might have even been Mac or somebody very logically was like why don't we just go knock on the door and ask for the, the guy to get it for us but Smalls was just like no he was the one who let the gate break and, and let the dog out in the first place and I'm like at some point did not your older brother who was the central character in the first arc of this story, explained to you that the wonderful old blind man who lived in that house was a former baseball player and gave him a 1927 signed like Yankees baseball. Like, why is this man not venerated in the Smalls household? It's somebody that Smalls spent one day at least a week talking and hanging out with yeah like this person would be like potentially somebody that they invited over for lunch and like the stepfather got to chat like I like this is there's no like the whole logic is that this character has kind of been he's like kind of a recluse and he's in there and maybe hidden that the sandlot does not touch in this uh is that the fact that maybe 1960s early 1960s it's still it's not said that it's set in salt lake city but that's apparently where they were sh- it was shot probably a lot of racism still going on well and so I mean, maybe they, this character is like the mean scary guy because he's the black guy in the town and that's just like its own like subtle like this racism is the undercurrent but now when you break through that barrier it's clear that he's just like this super sweet really interesting really cool character yeah and i I think that that kind of gets lost because it's the same character as the first movie and it's so he has that connection to smalls's older brother so smalls believing the terrible things said about him in town makes absolutely no sense in the context of the history of that family like It, it makes no sense there was also like an opportunity and I, and I assume they probably only had James Earl Jones for one day and it was probably half of a day to shoot that scene. Four hours tops. He was like, uh, keep the car but, running. Yeah. But there was an opportunity to like make him more of a character because in the first movie at the end, we established that he is this sweet old blind man that loves baseball. Uh, but I don't know. I guess they just wanted to include him in the sequel and have him reprise that role. And like... My first thought was, okay, maybe Smalls, I don't even know Smalls' real name from the original movie. We'll call him Smalls and we'll call his brother Johnny. Uh, like, you could put, like, you could pass it off as well. Maybe Smalls is just playing a prank, like, oh, yeah, you know, don't go mess with the old man and the big dog over there. But like you said, Darby, like, we know at the end of Sandlot that they kind of developed this relationship where they were going to go over and talk baseball. And it was like they live right down the street from each other. I don't know. It seemed very far-fetched and just another excuse to rip off uh, the original movie. That part of it made a lot of things in this movie don't make a lot of sense. Like it feels like nobody went over this from a story edit point of view to be like, Hey, that, what about it? this in the last movie? And, and this doesn't make any sense if they're connected. Like you could have just not had him be a smalls or you could have had one of the other new kids. Cause it was really well established that most of the kids in the rest of the gang had only been around for a year or two. 
mm-hmm. um, except for David, because David's obviously lived in town since he was at least six and got attacked by the dog. But you could have had one of the other kids tell a story that they had heard about why that fence got put up and, you know, explain it to, to somebody else in the group, explain it to Haley, because she's the newest transplant into town. And she could be like, why is this ugly old wall there? Oh, well, you never heard of. And like Smalls could keep trying to interject and be like, hey, but guys, and like, hey, but uh, why don't we just, and they'd be like, no, 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 that guy's crazy. And like, at the end of the day, he could have been the one that looked right because he knew better, um, but nobody would listen to him. Mm-hmm. That to me would have made way more sense in the context of the movie. Um, Cause he would have had that knowledge. He could be like, well, actually that guy, but actually, but hey, I think we could. And nobody wants to hear it it's yeah it's it's a big it's a glaring plot hole and and plot hole is like a wildly overused term in modern things it's just something that's not said in text but like this is a plot hole it really is because there's no reason why this character wouldn't be aware that this person exists and is fine like unless you have to do some crazy logical bending to make this work that that's not just what you can do so it's a big pro it's a big flaw because the whole like point is there is this fear of the unknown and you're and they're having to do all these crazy things to try to get it until eventually uh david decides to take up the mantle he changes out his pf flyers for nike's and has the the red cape with his red rocket comic character cape that he was wearing when he was a kid and got bit by the dog to jump over to olay the dog like a bullfighter to grab the thing to run away to bike away instead of run it just it's it's so it's such a it just it just feels flat it's just all so flat it's like we've seen this we've seen it better and then it's taking care of business as the song which when you do that same scene and it's wipeout instead which is a driving like acoustic like a not not lyrics just driving guitar riff which is so much better for a chase scene than taking care of business as a song it's it doesn't it doesn't work it doesn't work and then it ends with him jumping over the fence again but instead of the dog being crushed it's johnny no johnny david (laughs) falling into the cave that they built and then he's buried but then the dog who's really good at digging saves him so instead of the kid saving the dog the dog now saves uh the kid, the kid and then and then cue James Earl Jones as Mr. Myrtle to show up to be like oh my god all of these white kids are destroying my property again 10 years later and there's more people destroying my property in this town um, but also like to uh, give a round of applause to the softball girls who in the name of love let his uh, unneutered dog into the yard of a unspayed female dog that was not his because they were in love and it was his girlfriend uh and five puppies later uh i'm sure the owner of that female dog was thrilled with them for that particular move Um, (laughs) but yeah good times um so let's talk a little bit about the retriever 
do we do we want to take a break before we talk about the retriever? <laughs> yeah, I think let's let's save that for we, the after. We, we might need to uh, to to calm ourselves and get a stiff drink before we talk about the character of the retriever. Uh, okay, let's take a quick break. When we come back, you'll be delighted if you've never seen this movie. So something we haven't talked about yet in discussing the Sandlot is the character of the retriever, and this is I'm gonna let Darby go. To, to town on this because I know he has some opinions but the retriever is kind of interesting in that he's foreshadowed throughout the entirety of the movie like before there's ever any dog ish dog related issues before anything that this character might need to be involved with and we'll explain him a little bit in a second uh he is foreshadowed from the very first scene of this movie where the kids are all at school and you see this kid who looks like a narc he looks like an absolute 70s narc he is aviators feathered hair looks like a big old dork like draco malfoy if he went to high school in in muggle town in the 70s 100 percent. this kid looks like an absolute little weirdo and i was dead convinced he might secretly be the the foil type character in the movie that he was gonna i don't know use his dad's millions to buy the sandlot and build a, an empire i don't know but something something get like this something. character is is there all whole time so either he's friend or foe but he has to have some big role yeah because like you see a scene where like johnny's watching the kids play at the sandlot and then it pans over and you see this blonde kid up in a treehouse also watching the sandlot game and he kind of just like shows up in the periphery periodically throughout the beginning of this movie and all the while you're like what is this weirdo little kid's deal like is he undercover with the fbi and he's trying to like foil some sort of plot because the mad scientists from from um the the dog movie are here now but um who who the heck knows uh something with the nasa kid like care like the the father yes something something some connection and to this movie. He he looks like he's a 12-year-old. Like, let's be real here. You don't think much of him, but they keep kind of hinting that this character is going to be something more. And the reason I point out that it's unusual that they do this even before anything ends up in the dog's yard is because of who this character ends up being. And I am going to, like, just throw this over to Darby now because he yeah the, so the, the character retriever. the character's only titled is the retriever we don't know the name of this kid and he comes in late in the film as a sort of deus ex machina to like solve the the the, the thing and he explains his whole like deal is that he likes to steal dog tag like actual dogs dog tags. tags and he has a whole like necklace of them because a dog once chewed up his frisbee and made it unusable he doesn't have the depth of backstory against dogs that david does by any stretch of the imagination he has a vendetta against all dogs because once a frisbee of his went into a dog's yard and the dog chewed on it before he could get it back and i and th this is his whole character he has like a necklace of dog tags and he's like just this like passionate like psychopath basically like this this character definitely grew up to be a serial killer because we know that like 
serial killers practice on animals. So he's like been like practicing kidnapping. So maybe not a killer, but a serial kidnapper or something like that. Weird, weird he kid. definitely kid. became a Quentin Tarantino character in later life. Yes, yes. And maybe that's what, maybe that's what they were trying to do. Maybe he was trying to like have like a mysterious ripoff, but there's no reason to set up this character so much. Then he shows up. Then he, he fails miserably because his whole thing is he's going to go in. He's like, I can solve your issue. And this is after they've done some stuff. They've like tried some things. They failed. Then the retriever shows up to finally like appear and finally have words and lines. And you're like, oh, oh, he's here. Okay, now this character, like this is the payoff. And I wrote the note, the retriever, question mark, exclamation mark, question mark. We built this character up for that. And that's my note. That's my note on this character because he shows up. He's like, whatever you, whatever you hear, don't open this door. He goes into the yard. It's, he's like, oh my God, open the door, it's a mess. And then he gets like thrown comically over the wall by the dog. And then he's like, it can't be retrieved. I retire. I retire and then he leaves. And that's the character. He shows up again for a coda in this film, but like, what was that? It was so, it was, it ground the movie to a halt out of nowhere to then every time he's on scene, you're like, what is this character? What's going on with this character? And then eventually it's there. And I was like, this doesn't make any sense to have this character exist in this way. Like you either introduce him earlier and then this becomes that moment. And then it's a, it's a swerve. Like it, he fails. Like if he shows have, up on the baseball field and that's his him thing. be the one to explain who the dog is. Maybe, yes. And maybe he shows up because like he shows up after the thing goes over the fence. Or I don't know. It, the way it's done is so bad. And I'm like, this character should, like you could cut this character out of the movie. Every scene he's in, and this film would not miss a single bit. Like it easily cut out. Have easily. him be somebody that the neighborhood kids know about. That like, oh, you got a dog problem? We got to go get the retriever. Who That's, the hell's the retriever? There you go. Oh, we'll tell you. And like, so he is like this kid who's known for you go to his like club. Yeah, you go to his like uh, his treehouse, and you have to yeah. like pay him something, right? Like yeah. you have to be like, oh, this is the. You can get the cat involved there. They get yeah. to give him the cat tag or something. I don't know. Like, that's how you get him involved is like, he becomes a quirky side character that they're like, we got to, we, we know the guy. Yeah. And then he fails. The fact that he's just in the periphery. But then he's really hyped up because they think he can do anything and they have expectations of him. But it, instead it's just him going, I can do it. And then he doesn't. And if that was just the only scene that he's in, right? Like if you just were like, we know a guy and they show up at his place. And he's like a fake detective. Like he's like, you know, a, like a gumshoe type. Like and he's an Encyclopedia his... Brown, you betcha. Yeah. yeah. And then he's just there. And the only, the first time we ever see him in the film is them showing up at his treehouse and like commissioning him for this job. And then him going and doing it and then failing and being like, it can't be done. That then be you're funny. like, now you've reached the low point. You're like, oh, we can't do it. And then that's when David has to make his thing. The fact that he's foreshadowed in the movie is so weird. It logically doesn't make any sense. But then I was like, why is this character here? Like you could easily cut this character out of this film and you'd miss no emotional beats, story beats, have no impact on the storyline or like anything. But then I was like, huh, 
Griffin Riley Evans plays the retriever. Griffin Riley Evans. 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 Where did I hear that name before? Griffin Riley Evans. It's the only, it's his only film role. It's his only mm -hmm. acting role at all. Griffin Riley Evans. You know, there's <laughs> another person named Evans in this movie. David Mickey Evans. Three names as well listed. Huh. Spelled the same way. I wonder, yes, it's his son. It's his son. He wrote an entire role and gave multiple scenes to his son. Just cause. Just cause. Yeah. And we just punched up that scene better. Like oh, yeah. you can have, I'm okay. I'm okay with this straight to DVD film, including like all the, all the kid actors in this have, like do a terrible job, except for maybe Haley. But like, you can have another bad kid actor. Like, I don't think necessarily the retriever was much worse than no, any of these other kid actors. There were three seconds where that kid showed up and like took off his glasses and had his goofy looking face where I was just like, this kid's about to become my favorite part of this movie. Like I was braced for it. I was just like- He needed to be with that buildup. This little weirdo is going to be the best thing to happen. And then three seconds later, I'm like, well, I'm glad I didn't send anybody that text because that's <laughs> not accurate. Um, but no, he was terrible. But I think if it had worked the way that we we kind of reimagined it, then he would have maybe been the best part of that whole movie. Just, just imagine the first time we see that character. Like, listen- David Mickey Evans, you want to put your son in this film? Whatever, fine, go for it. It's the least egregious thing. The more egregious is putting that much screen time into this nothing character. Yeah. But you you set it up so that his he's like five minutes of screen time and it's set up just to get you to the low point where there's they've they've come to the end. There's no chance unless David takes up the hero mantle. And the first thing we see of him is him swiveling around in a chair. And it's him. And you they come to him and there's a funny scene and he's like, And he's weird drinking a and, juice box or something. Yeah, like it's some, like something super like that. Absurd. Yeah. And he's like, tell me about the dog. And like it's what's the job? Yeah. I'm in. And then you you could also you could do it one or two ways. You can make it because it is the 70s, right? So you can make it either a reference to like a detective thing. So it's like, you know, your your cold warrior uh, espionage, or you make it a John Rambo type of thing where it's yeah. like like one last job that ties the in. bandana around goes in yes exactly yeah. yeah one of those two is fine the fact that it's set up like why is he looking at them during the most of this film there's nothing retreat to retrieve his whole character arc is just retrieving yeah and then oh god it's yeah. so dumb okay so now we got to get to the end so like you get to the very end and again another thing ripped directly off from the first sandlot is at the very end, we see the characters fade away and we get their like, their like what happens to them yeah. in life. Did you have a fate? Like, I wanna, I wanna know if, if you guys have your favorite character. I sure ending. do. Um, well, for, for starters, bless, they really couldn't decide what to do with Haley. Um, so she got to become both a supermodel and a gold medal winning softball player. Um, which, you know, in, in and of itself, I'm not mad about. Um, and everyone kind of got normal. Okay, I have two favorites. I have two favorites from here. Um, my first, excuse me, what the F did you just say, is the brothers who mm -hmm. went on to establish a, the, the, I'm sorry, the white brothers. They're very white. Who Hyper went white, on, yes. What? 
like hyper white, like oh, yeah. as like the, white as you can possibly imagine. So white. And they go on, I'm just a reminder, one of the brothers is literally deaf. This is important. Um, they go on to establish and found a hip hop label. Um, but that's not the best part because they go on to establish Def Jam. Uh-huh. The, yeah. the Russell Simmons slander. Yeah, I, Russell Simmons, you can sue. I know exactly who you can sue. Line it up. Absolutely. Uh, not great. Not a good look for, but my, my favorite, just because could we not have found anything better for the only black character as part of this gang? Uh, he couldn't have had some amazing thing happen to him in life. No, no. What happens to Tarkel? What happens to Tarkel Darby? Aliens. It gets abducted aliens. by aliens and is never seen or heard from again. So that is definitely them trying him. He, Evans is going back to the well because one of the characters in the first one, their ending is got really into the 60s and we never saw them again. And it's kind of funny, right? Because like the idea is that like he got really into the 60s and we never know. Tarkel could easily just be here's how you're better ending. Cause he is like the, the hippie kid, right? He's mm -hmm. got like the, like the, the, like the Jimi Hendrix, like headband and, and like stuff. He's the hippie kid and he talks, he has a lot of like very hippie lines. You make him into like, he starts following this band called the Grateful Dead. Yeah, there you go. And they say he's still following them to this day because they are still around to this day and they're still touring. And that becomes his entire, he's a, he's a deadhead. And then he just, that's his life. He's just been following them for the last 40 years. Yeah. Because people have done that. That's like a real thing that happened. And it kind of makes, it's kind of fun. He's the hippie. He goes, he, he becomes yeah. a deadhead and we never hear from him again because that's his life. He's on the road, oh. going to concerts. Oh, so no, much better. So much better. What follows that is that the only other two female characters that spent any time with them for the entire summer went on to have the most challenging job of them all. And they each raised three kids. Yeah, yeah, they went on to be moms. That was it. And like that, no shade to moms listening, but like two of the main, the three main characters that are female in this movie. They didn't but, like write, they don't like write books as well. Or they like don't have anything else thing. going on in their lives. They just raised kids. And then the other female character was both a supermodel and a gold medal winning Olympian. So she got to pretty do cool, everything. Pretty cool stuff. Yeah, pretty cool stuff. Everything. Uh, <sighs> yeah, it wasn't as good. It wasn't as, what is, isn't it? Wasn't as great, right? Doesn't no. have the same emotional impact as sports yeah. broadcaster and baseball player. Yeah. Even the retriever got a cooler ending because yeah. he ended up going to Australia with his parents and having like a syndicated TV show where he like hunted down wild. He becomes, he basically in that they like, He's like a Ray Steve Irwin from, yeah. yeah, he becomes Steve Irwin. Um, it's, yeah, that's really so, all you can it's say. So bad. So, it's, oh, and, and David and Haley date all through high school and then break up. But then 10 years later, they find each other again and they get married happily ever yeah. after the end. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know. It's, 
this movie, this movie sucked. Yeah. It sucks so hard. I really hated it. I hated it from the beginning on. Like I, I hated every aspect of it. Uh, it's actively one of, if not my least favorite movie of all time. I, I feel like we've watched worse movies than this on this podcast. I don't think we have. And uh, I say that with the <laughs> scout and trouble with the curve. And I, I laughed at a few Albert Brooks jokes. I don't know that I, I actively I, felt bad about my life like I did with Trouble with the Curve. I think this one baffled and annoyed me in a ways that I couldn't imagine. Because, okay, here's the thing with Trouble with the Curve. The, the writer and the director of that were basically Clint Eastwood's friends. Yeah. And I don't know if they can do any better. Like, I think they might just be like very capable second unit director. And, and like, the cinematography was nice. Cinematography was nice because that, that was like a really good cinematography. Yeah. This movie, I know, like, again, I, I joke slash also I'm not joking. If somebody out there claims that they also, they were the person that actually wrote and directed the scout or the scout, the Sandlot, hit me up. Give me a call. We are going to break this story. New York Times, Washington Post. You're, I am waiting by the phone. We are going to break this. There's a Pulitzer in this for somebody. Now, if that's not true, and David Mickey Evans really did direct and write The Sandlot as it is reported, then I know he's capable of so much better than this. So that's why this is super annoying is that like you, you can't make a movie as unbelievably flawless and beautiful as the Sandlot and then also have just this, this level of like active garbage. Yeah. It's remarkable. It's, I will die angry about this. This will be my last breath on this earth. will be like, what happened in that Sandlot too? How did this happen? How's this for a theory for you? I'm going to, I'm going to give you this one because I think you'll like to chew on it for a bit. Okay. I think, I think it's believable enough that you, uh, okay. you'll, you'll, you'll accept it for truth from this point forward. If nobody else calls you, <laughs> um, Sandlot and rookie of the year came out the same year. And Daniel Stern directed Rookie of the Year and has not directed anything else since. Mm. What if, because of the conjure, he could not take on two projects officially at the same release? And he is our shadow director for The Sandlot and just has never opened up about it and the guilt of not being able to take credit for both movies or the weight of it is the reason he has never directed anything else well i love that that actually does make that does, that that yeah. is <laughs> my reality until proven otherwise All right that is i am substituting that as my new reality you're welcome um, um daniel stern feel free to uh send me a dm and tell me i'm right <laughs> I'm cool. Let's get you these credit. I won't tell anybody. I might, but you know. I've got quick news for you guys. Uh -oh. uh, there is a third Sandlot. I know with Luke and, Perry. Yeah. And I don't know if it's like of the prominence that will actually come to review it. Um, It'll be on the list. 
But it does exist, Sandlot heading home. And, and one of the original actors does uh, come back in Sandlot heading home. So I don't know. Uh, it, Maybe something to uh, not look forward to, but I guess something to dread in the future. Of <laughs> so I, visit a I read sequel. the summary of Sandlot 3 prior to this because I did actually want to know if it was yet another beat for beat remake of the Sandlot. And it time is not. Movie. There is time travel in it. Yeah. Uh, and it's kind of, it's a wonderful life in in that like he kind of sees the path that he took uh, turned him into a bit of a jerk and reassesses his life as a result. But uh It'll be on our long-term list. I mean, if we keep doing this podcast for a couple of years, we're gonna have to watch them all anyway. Yeah, Man, um, I hate time travel movies, so I guess I've got that look to look forward to. Um, but yeah, it's a uh, man. Okay, well, I mean, do we have to? It's hard to pick a player for a movie where there's barely any baseball. But I got mine. Okay, uh, I'm gonna go with Haley. Uh, why, why the heck not? She seems to have pretty good command uh and some pretty good speed uh i'd like to see what she could do with a regulation baseball uh maybe turn her into a bit of a side armor could be pretty entertaining um but yeah i'm i'm team Haley on this one she's the only one who showed any kind of actual skill so i am not taking anybody that played baseball in this movie oh but you know what i am gonna take is somebody that i think could be a solid uh bench coach just to, just to be somebody you want to have in the clubhouse, that you want to listen to some wisdom. And that is taking Mr. Myrtle. Yeah. And I want to hear about him, the, the better hitter than the babe. Like the crowd, the plate, make the strikes of him disappear. I think that might have been a, a type of, he might have been ahead of his time with the idea of trying to get on base anyway. Yeah. And... There's lots of stories to be told there. And you know what? He's he is needs his time in the sun. And I think the modern game is actually where he would get his rightful place. So let's teleport him through time and space, which does exist in this universe, apparently, uh, to the modern era and, and give Kevin Cash somebody else on the bench. Uh, you know, an extra bench coach doesn't have to be the main bench. He can just be, you know, there's a, there's enough in the dugout. Mm. The Don Zimmer role, the the official kind of just kindly, brilliant old baseball mind that can tell you a story that uh, you can just learn from by osmosis. So let's bring in Mr. Myrtle and he can bring whatever giant uh, dog he wants. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, I'm going to go with the coach route um, because he's a Tampa native. Uh, biggest forearms in baseball history. I gotta <laughs> go, Steve go Garvey. Garvey. <laughs> uh, really, because I mean, one, I'll take him as a coach, but I think he could probably still, in this point when the movie takes place, outplay any of the twelve-year-olds in the movie. Um, but from Tampa, add add the local guy to a coaching staff that already has a couple other local guys um, on it. So give me Steve Garvey Can as I the hitting that? coach, a co-hitting coach with Chad Motorola. That's, that's that's not bad considering this movie said had Chad almost... Motorola. It's not his name. It's Chad <laughs> Motorola. Motorola. It wasn't even a, like it, it wasn't even good. intentional. It just. Oh, it... I like that. <laughs> um, okay, I, Brett kind of proposed something before we recorded this that I liked, especially for a movie this bad. Um, and you had suggested we pick one good thing about this movie, um, which I think might explode Darby's head. So I'm going to make him go first. Darby, okay. um, what was your one good thing about this movie? 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, I will, I will, um, I will say that I liked that they, I like the, the NASA, I like that they're, they did at least try to kind of put in a little bit of like the space race, the Cold War, like NASA importance, like how that is sort of in the forefront of kind of American culture at that time and, and how that is kind of a really important thing that's going to become more important over the years. I thought that was cool. I just wish there was a little bit more of it because I actually do think that could be a neat side um, bit. And even, you could even like gone further with like some fake, like, cause they even mentioned uh, like, oh, maybe he's a, he's a, like a commie uh, to, to Smalls when they're trying to beat him up. Like he's a spy, he's a commie spy. Like, I think you could have maybe even gone further with that. Like the Red Scare type of, you know, parts of the era. Um, so I liked that, that NASA and science and space was a central player in this movie. Um, and yeah, I just want a whole movie based on maybe that that father character and just ignore all of the kids. <laughs> and just his time at NASA. I mentioned it earlier in the podcast, um, but I'll, I'll, I'll say it again. I, I really like Samantha Burton's performance as Haley Goodfair. I thought for her first and ultimately last um, act, uh, acting role, I thought she did a fine job. I don't know what age she was when, when the movie came out in 2005, but again, uh, the writers let her down. Uh, the the director let her down. A lot of people let her down, but I thought for what she was given, she she did a fine job. Um, I'm going to go with Mastiff Puppies wearing ringer tees. That was pretty high on my list because um, they're pretty cute. And I'm going to go with the homage to the Great Escape theme, which made me giggle quite a little bit. Uh, I thought that was cute. Although that entire scene ends with Max shit his pants. Um, and that... <laughs> that uh, literally, because there's a whole part where they're like, what smells so bad? And then he walks away with like a stain on his back. Um, maybe not, not, not the best, but that literally I think is the low point in that whole like attempts made. Everyone's like, well, Mac, Mac pooped. So <laughs> I guess we're done here. And then David realizes he's got to do his part. Um, so that's really what it took. It took, it took Mac, Mac the deuce and uh that's uh, that's that but yeah the, the the underground tunneling cave scene was amusing uh i like that the dog destroyed the aluminum bat um but anyway um it was terrible don't watch this movie <laughs> like just watch the first one and then imagine what it would be if it was run through a photocopier from 1964. that's about all i can give you you know and there are this the this is interesting because now my my new uh, rival, forever rival, David Mickey Evans. <laughs> he, we will we will encounter him again. Yeah, we will. Not just in like potentially the Sandlot three. Uh, Did he? But is he responsible for that too? I think he might just be producer. So maybe it, okay. maybe it'll be good. Maybe I mean, they good. hint at it at the end of the movie where it's all like the shoes hung there for many years until somebody else used them. But that's another story. I could not imagine the kerning on that text being any worse. <laughs> gigantic letters scrolling across the screen. And I'm like, we couldn't have condensed this into a title card? Like, it's it's rough and there is so we he has a couple of more he he clearly likes baseball 
Um, Cause he does have a few things. Obviously you got Ed that's mm. it's coming up at some point. We will, we will, we will have special we will guests tackle that. for Ed just, just so everybody is prepared. We, we have we can get through talked that. to the fine folks at take me into the ball game, uh, Ellen and Eric, and they will join us for Ed. Um, so that should be a laugh riot. We need um, to build up to that because it's, it's going to take a lot to get back into a Davey, David Mickey Evans joint. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but he also has one called The Final Season oh, with no. Sean Astin. Oh! Which is about a high school baseball team. Um, it also has Powers Booth, one of the best voices in, in Hollywood. Uh, so, yeah, there's that. Um, and he also announced not necessarily i don't know what stage it is but there is an untitled sandlot rachel lee cook is in this movie tom arnold oh no yeah so we might we might we might come we might encounter uh cross paths again but uh not for a while because oh dear god i need i need a break from them and to something much much better that doesn't actively try to ruin a childhood classic that i beloved uh so <laughs> I, I feel though darby if we've achieved anything in watching the sandlot too it's that you now have a nemesis and i think that that is a beautiful thing i think if we can't get through if we get through our whole lives without having a mortal enemy what have we really done and what life have we lived and now you know who yours is and we'll be sure we'll tag him when we release this episode so that he can understand and appreciate just how you feel about <laughs> Daniel Stern's Sandlot versus the Sandlot <laughs> Release and the Stern cut. <laughs> release the, release Stern, the Stern cut. We are, this is canon now. This is how life is. So I, I hope everybody can spread the gospel that Daniel Stern directed the Sandlot. And <laughs> And um, he just couldn't be in it because he was using all of his time on the set of the Rookie of the Year. Yeah. And um, he was I, still in character as Brahma, yeah. and he couldn't, he couldn't like separate. He was so deep; it was Daniel Day Lewis level deep, and he just couldn't, couldn't break and, out. I choose to believe that that is a hundred percent true now. I want to live in that world, and so I, <laughs> I shall choose to believe it too yeah oh so, boy. um if you're not following i guess me on twitter uh that but we all share share and share alike uh you get to vote on the next poll for whatever torment we endure uh so i'm at 90 feet from home and darby you're what darby underscore robinson yeah or, yeah throw yeah. that underscore in between but yeah darby robinson with the underscore in between brett what you got yours is numbers and letters and i'm too dysnumeric to remember what the combo is for wait what <laughs> your your twitter account <laughs> oh uh at bg rutherford 99 yeah see there we go thank you uh it's too too complicated for me five wait, letters what a great numbers. producer i am tuning out at the end of the show <laughs> he's like he's texting what we're talking about daniel stern who can blame him um yeah this is this is why we have him around it's good he he makes us sound nice but he doesn't pay attention to us and i think that's very fair uh it's the only way to get through an hour and a half of us doing this I well swear. just know like i have to listen to this uh, so, all the way back through anyway you can later. also follow at d ray's pay d ray's pay uh no but none of us get paid d ray's bay <laughs> <laughs> um Oh my God. Okay. Well, none of us have been drinking, but that's maybe what we'll go do now because Darby has to go recap a West Coast game. 
which lucky for him, he is on the West Coast, so it's not quite the punishment it might be for myself or Brett. Uh, and we will put up a poll for our next offerings. None of us have discussed this, so we have no idea what the options will be. We will hate any of them. So thanks in advance, you jerks, for making us watch one. Uh, and we hope you guys have a great one. We'll see you back next time. Bye.